You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, July 13, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Jack Farley with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. The U.S. is heading straight for a fiscal cliff. Congress is deadlocked on the scale of the next stimulus package. And even if there will be a next stimulus package, time is quickly running out. The stimulus has been a critical factor in keeping everything afloat. It's injected about $18 billion per week into the economy. But some think that this could be too much of a good thing. Economists at the University of Chicago and Enber released a study that found that 68% of workers on unemployment insurance were making more than they would than if they were working at their old job. And a fifth of all workers were making double than what they would make at their old job. The PPP was extended, but only for eight weeks more, as it expires on August 8th, and no additional money was added to the pot. Democrats and Republicans are debating whether enhanced benefits should be continued past July, and if so, what size of the benefit should be. They're also debating whether they should issue another round of stimulus checks and who should get them. So more stimulus could be within reach, but what shape it will take and who benefits from it is still up in the air. We just know that if Congress hesitates to act, the economic horrors that we witnessed in April will not hesitate to resurface. In other news, Tesla had a spasmodic day, jumping nearly 7% pre-market and then skyrocketing 16% into mid-morning, its market cap briefly breathing that rare air over $300 billion, before crashing in the afternoon and ultimately ending down 3% for the day. The price-to-earnings ratio for Tesla now stands at over 10,000, and price-to-book is 33, price-to-sales 11, and for forward earnings, the price-to-earnings ratio is 180. By comparison, Toyota sells for 61% of sales and 91% of its book value. Tesla eclipsed Toyota as the world's biggest automaker by market cap in late June. But it didn't end there. Tesla has since added over $100 billion to its market cap since that happened two weeks ago. Tesla's rally has coincided with the faltering auto sector worldwide. That's why Tesla is now worth more than Ford, GM, Fiat Chrysler, Daimler, Ferrari, Honda, Hyundai, and BMW combined. What could possibly justify this sky-high multiple? Well, as Tesla bulls repeatedly say, you can't value this as a car company. Teslas aren't cars. They're computers on wheels. Perhaps the exalted valuation implies that investors are anticipating Tesla to be an effective monopoly, sort of like the FANG stocks. But how do investors reconcile the competitors in the space, such as Ford, GM, as well as the new speculative players in the EV space, such as Nikola and Workhorse. Tesla has a head start for sure, but is a first mover advantage really worth a PE multiple of 10,000? The epic rally in Tesla shares occurred as it reported over 90,000 deliveries for Q2. Deliveries is one of Tesla's favorite metrics, and it's based on the premise that demand is not the problem, that there's, there's always gonna be a lot of consumers clamoring for Tesla cars, and that the real constraint is production. So that's why they report how many cars that they've produced and delivered. But then Tesla just announced that it's cutting the price on its Model Y by $3,000. So maybe the demand for computers on wheels during a pandemic 
is not so inexorable after all. I know one historical analogy Ed is thinking about is the 2000 dot-com bubble. The question is, is Tesla like an Amazon, a company that is swept up in speculative fervor, but one that nevertheless delivers the goods? Or is it more like a Cisco, a high flyer that didn't live up to its rich valuation and lofty expectation? It's probably not a pets.com, but Tesla could be a Cisco. And as Ed points out, even though Amazon was a darling then and is certainly a darling now, it declined a full 90% peak to trough. The parallel that I'm thinking about is the 2008 short squeeze on Volkswagen, the biggest short squeeze of all time so far that temporarily made the German automaker the biggest company in the world by market cap. The short position on Tesla is almost $20 billion, a record, meaning that the market cap of all the money betting against Tesla exceeds the money betting on a company like Hyundai. Really is remarkable. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Ed. How was your weekend? It was good. How about yourself? Never enough sleep. <laughs> So what's uh, what's on your mind today? I don't know. What do you think about these equity markets? Pretty uh, crazy last hour of trading, eh? Yeah, I, you know what's on my mind is definitely uh, Tesla, which is what uh, Jack was talking about, and the fact that it was at eighteen hundred, which is a record high. It ended at the just below the fifteen hundred mark. The last I saw it was settling down just uh, as we started in for taping. But I mean, uh, a massive rally in Tesla. Yeah. Let's zoom the camera lens out for a minute and talk about that more broadly. What are your thoughts about what's happening in Tesla, not just today, but big picture? I, I want to wax a little philosophically here about uh, Tesla in general. I don't want to talk about the share price or how it compares to Amazon as a company, uh, which was unprofitable back in 2001, or talk about Toyota. I want to talk about shares and why people are speculating in the market, why they're speculating on, on companies like Tesla anyway. Right. And something that hit me because I was watching the Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan uh, interview, and they were talking about what I would call the social psychology of economics, not economics, not finance, but social psychology, uh, sociology, if you will. And one of the things that came to mind to me, I thought it was a great interview, by the way, is that they were talking a lot about control, taking back control. And it occurred to me that a lot of what we're seeing now is not just a mania necessarily uh, perpetrated by the Fed. It's actually people getting some control of their lives doing something that they know that they are actually responsible for. They're doing it at a time when they have no control, absolutely no control. And so that's how I'm thinking about this, first and foremost. So, so how does that manifest itself specifically with regard to Tesla in this case? Yeah. And, you know, by the way, Ash, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts. I want to make this like a conversation, not me waxing poetically here. But um, I think that it's with a company like Tesla, it's a, a field of dreams type of company. Uh, you know, I made the comparison to Amazon. You had other sorts of Amazons back in 2001. Only Amazon has emerged as the winner 
uh, you know, maybe there were one or two other winners from 1999, like, uh, for instance, uh, eBay. Um, but and actually, I don't even know if eBay went public after the, the, the crash. But nonetheless, the, the Tesla allows you to say, you know, I see something. I understand it. You know, I'm not doing incredibly well. I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm putting my money to use in a way that I control, that I'm, I'm in control of this. It's my destiny. I'm making money. And, and, and there you go. That's it. Well, you know, at risk of violating your foundational precept and not comparing it to Toyota, you know, Toyota, Volkswagen, Honda uh, are the two, three and four largest auto companies by market cap in the world right now. And Tesla is now bigger than all three combined. Right. And, you know, that speaks to the bubble, obviously. And everyone's looking at it from the perspective of uh, a bubble and the Fed fomenting that bubble. But what's what's really happening here? What's happening in the economy? What's happening right now? What's happening is is that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of you know a potential depression in terms of the loss of jobs, et cetera, the loss of control. You can't even go out without wearing a mask. You, there's so many different things that you can't do, and it's at the it's at the the end of something that Lonergan and uh, and Blythe were talking about with regard to two decades, three decades of a loss of control, where people felt like technology was taking over, that neoliberalism was uh, making their their world unstable. I think that what people seek, they seek control, they seek stability, they, they seek uh, something that is safe, and they're not getting it in the world today. And they're trying to, in many different ways, in many different countries, take back control, to use a phrase from, uh, from, uh, from the UK. Right. Well, you know, but it's almost paradoxical in the sense that the, the stock price of Tesla has been run up. The first time that Tesla was profitable uh, on a quarterly basis, gap compliant numbers, was Q1 2020. The first profit uh, on a gap compliant basis that Tesla has turned. So it's interesting. It seems if the desire is to take more control, people are going out further in terms of risk, in terms of U.S. equities, at least, in terms of risk. Um, Clearly, a company that hadn't been profitable until recently, I think, um, um, you know, $16 million or something uh, when they do their gap compliant numbers. It's not a tremendous profit. And at the same time, you talk about losing control. People are buying into a concept that is heavily laden with technology. You think about it Tesla is the first major brand of automobile that can come and pick you up from the parking lot. So you're literally ceding control to the driverless car. You're ceding control to technology. Uh, you're ceding your control by buying a company that hasn't been profitable in the past, that doesn't have a track record of delivering net income quarter after quarter after quarter. Now, I'm not saying that I'm bearish on the stock. I don't actually have an opinion on it. But it's interesting, this paradox of people reaching for uh, greater, greater sort of lift into the future uh, when they feel least in control in the present. Yeah, it, it is fascinating in terms of the human psyche, and that's why I say it goes back to uh, Blythe and Lonergan and what they're talking about and the solutions that they came up with. I mean, the way that I was thinking about it from the beginning is uh, we had this world 
19, let's call it 1945 to 73, where you had a structure which gave people a sense that everything was stable. Um, I think Blythe was talking about the fact that he was married to an East German woman, and she was saying, you know, what happened? It used to be that I used to go to school, I'd, go, I'd get my trade, I'd be at work for 40 years, and I'd retire. It was all good. You know, there was that stability. That was the world that we lived in from 45 to 73. Somewhere along the lines in the late 60s, that all blew apart because of inflation in particular, and it steamrolled us into stagflation in the 70s. So in the 70s, we put together a new model. We threw out the old model. We put a new model in, and that model was one that said glo globalization. It said, you know, free markets. Uh, and there was a lot of change. But uh, with that change came opportunity, prosperity, et cetera. But at some point, and I would call it uh, zero rates, we reached the end of the line because I would call this the monetarist model. The monetarism ended in 2008. We tried to put Humpty Dumpty back together again over a 12-year period. And, uh, and w here we are now with this pandemic. Um, and I think that this model is ending in the exact same way the old model from 45 to 73 ended with the stagflation of the 70s in a turbulent, very difficult period of time. So I think that we're going through that same sort of turbulence that we went through some, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting because this could be one, if you're taking a look at it along that time horizon, the third such event that one could cite to as an end of a cycle, 9-11, obviously, uh, and certainly the 2008 period as one that could have potentially been seen as an end, and yet it's managed to keep going. And now the conventional wisdom is, nope, but the cycle is really over. This pandemic really harkens a new age. Yeah, I'm not saying that it harkens a new age. I'm saying that, you know, we can call it like the, the you know, I think that uh, there's the fourth turning metaphor that uh, people talk about. But I'm thinking about it in terms of the turbulent 60s moving into the stagflation of 70s. It's sort of a cycle that happens over time. What's what is your thinking? As I said, I wanted to be a conversation. I'm not a, a talking head. I'm, I'm just thinking outside the box in terms of, you know, it, it's an incredible time that markets are going to incredible highs in the midst of a depression. It's something that is unprecedented, and I have no explanation for it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, it does, it does feel as though we are at kind of an inflection point. I, I tend to think of the cycles maybe on a slightly uh, uh, shorter uh, time horizon. I mean, we, we grew up during this period uh, of, of tremendous optimism, figure, say, 40, 1945, uh, the end of the Second World War, until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1991, the year I graduated uh, from high school. Uh, and we've been beset by a, a fair number of crises, shocks, turbulence, as I said, that all s had the suggestion that perhaps a longer-term cycle was going to an end. It's very difficult to tell when you're actually standing in the middle of an inflection point uh, what might be happening. But there does seem to be a sense uh, that things are about to change. Look, you point out the 12-year cycle uh, from, from the 2008 financial crisis until the present, that this consistent 
drop in in interest rates. Uh, you know, starting if you do the chart from 1980 uh, until today, it is one rather long downward slope down and to the right. Uh, so so you it does feel as though that there is this 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 coalescence of of events, but it's just so close and so hard to see what happens. You know, Raul has talked about uh, about the dollar. Uh, and the consistent march upward in the dollar, the primacy of the dollar, uh, and effectively, in Raoul's view, uh, eventually the dollar has broken all of its competitors and will eventually break itself. You know, in times of crisis, we saw this in 2008. We saw this uh, with the COVID crisis. There is a tremendous flight to quality of U.S. dollar-denominated assets. If you want exposure to equity markets globally, the market of choice is clearly the U.S. Um, so it's not clear to me what the next period is going to be, but there is obviously turbulence right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put it more simply. People, they're sick of the bullshit, and they want their lives back. That's how I would put it. They're, they're sick to, in de to, in to death of being sold a bill of goods uh, that this is change and, you know, it's going to be positive and the world is going to be better. And then actually it's not. And so we're, we're getting to that point, the crescendo uh, of that point with the pandemic. The pandemic has brought it all home for people that it's not coming back, that there's no reason to hope that the current system is going to give them what they want. So they're ready to overthrow that system by whatever means necessary. And, and, and so they're looking around for a way to get some sort of control, whether it be through stocks, whether it be through uh, supporting different policies, whether it be uh, supporting nationalism, supporting different uh, ideologies, et cetera. Uh, somehow they feel, you know, whatever it takes, I want to have that sense of security. I want to have that sense of stability back. Um, and, and I think that we're sort of at a, an inflection point with regard to that. Yeah, and I would probably add to that uh, mix digital assets as well, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, uh, and blockchain technologies being another reach for that type of control or stability. The desire to, f to be anchored in something outside of a nation state, perhaps, uh, that is a store of value in a very neutral, objective uh, way that cannot be uh, tampered with by central banks. So I feel as if, um, you know, we're at a point where we're going to find out very soon whether or not they can do it one more time, put it back together again. Uh, we got to near zero rates in 2001 after the uh, equity bubble. We got to zero rates and QE after 2008, 2009. And now here we are again, uh, zero rates almost throughout the entire cycle, but now even more buying up uh, uh, junk bonds even, but certainly corporate bonds. And then we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think that this is as far as it's going to go. This is as difficult as it's going to get for the system, the present system that we have. There has to be some definable change in terms of the economic policy uh, so that people feel a sense of security in their lives before we can get it back together again. That's that's the sense that I get. Well, let me present a counter case, Ed. What if the uh, the COVID crisis, uh, we, we continue to muddle along in the current state that we've been in, and then things improve. We have new treatments. Uh, the, the mortality rate has dropped, not substantially, but we have gotten better at treating it. There's the potential, at least, for vaccines on the horizon. In the U.S., uh, U.S. dollar-denominated assets are still the global flight to quality 
choice. Uh, U.S. equity markets uh, have been strong. One might say it's a bubble. I suppose you could make that argument. You could also make the argument that it's driven by the strength and the innovation of the American economy. Uh, so, so what happens if we continue to find ourselves a year or two from now um, without a substantial rupture from the current regime? Let's say the Fed manages to get interest rates uh, even marginally higher off the zero bound. Uh, they begin to slow the rate or actually uh, roll off on a, the balance sheet some of the assets they've taken on, uh, and things look a bit rosier. Is that a scenario that could not happen? I think that's too narrow a scenario to think about. I, I'm looking at it globally. When I when I talk about uh, the political economy, I'm thinking about ruptures that are happening all over the place. You know, I'm thinking about Hungary, where you basically have a, a authoritarian regime. I'm thinking about the EU, where you have populists who are springing up, whether it be left or right, everywhere, where you're you're having the frugal four against uh, you know the southern states in terms of a battle royale over the you know, the structure of the EU in terms of bailouts versus uh, deficits. I'm thinking about all over the, the developed economies where it seems that there is this angst about what the future holds for ordinary people. Uh, you know, the technocrats are telling you that they can put it together again. I mean, that's what you were saying is, is that, you know, the technocrats can, you know, give us a, a, some sense of normalcy. But well, that's, a, the ar that's the argument, at least. Right. right. Yeah. Argument. But but I don't believe that that's go that's going to to be enough uh, for people to 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 quell uh, the uh, quiescence. You know, people, they really want uh, some sort of change that is tangible in terms of their lives being more stable and and and, and more uh, secure than it has been since who can remember? And certainly, you know, when you think about Gen Z, uh, that's a generation after us. They don't know anything about stability. What they see is, I mean, when you think about why it is that they're completely against the system, all they've seen is 9-11. They've seen, you know, the financial crash in 2008. They've seen, you know, a, a pandemic. I mean, wh wh where's the stability for them? There's right. nothing in this system that uh, that holds any sort of yes. This is a great great system that we're invested in. Uh, you know that's a very interesting point. Uh, first of all, Ed, it's sadly it's two generations after us. Hard to believe, but true. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. You know, and I think that that when you think about the 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 framework, the context that they've seen the world through from from early childhood until today. I mean, I you know I remember this being a rebellious young man myself at some point when I was in my early twenties, and when when my parents would try and tell me to cool out. The, the message I would get was how great things had been, right? That this had been a, a, a truly wonderful, uh, a truly wonderful system, and and you know have some patience and work within it and change it because things consistently get better if you work hard, if you do the right thing, uh, things get better. And for us, that turned out to be the case. Uh, I'm not so sure that if I were 22 right now that I would feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, just think about it. You know. Uh you have a crash in 87. It doesn't bring the economy down. You have the jobless recession of 1990. 
then suddenly uh, you've, you, you're off to the races with the market going up. Uh, you know, the, the budget deficit is gone. You have the Internet, et cetera. Okay, so it came crashing down because it was a bubble. But then soon after that, there were a lot of things that made you feel like it was going through in a positive way. But then, you know, bang, 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 since, uh, you know, 2008, it's just been one big piece of stagnation for median uh, income. For the average wage earner, there's been nothing from the longest expansion in history. This isn't just true in the United States. I'm talking uh, all across the world. We're talking, you know, ANZ. We're talking uh, in Europe, in many different places. So... My, my, I'm thinking about Tesla, just to go back to where this all came from, in the, right. in the concept of is, is that it's a manifestation of all of this, uh, this, this, this mania is it's all a part of this whole concept of at least I can trade my own stocks. At least I can have my own ideas. If I, if I hit a home run, I did that. You know, in a world in which you have absolutely no control, in a world in which you can't even leave your house without thinking that you could be killed by a uh, a, a pandemic. Right. Yeah, it's a very interesting thesis. And I would add to that, not only have wages been stagnant uh, and inflation relatively low, but there have been two places in the U.S. economy where we've seen high levels of inflation. And those are the two that impact probably the lives of young people more than anything else, right? So education and healthcare. Those are two substantial barriers to, to leading an, uh, uh, a relatively stable and prosperous middle-class life in America. So, you know, when I think about the pandemic from this, this uh, thesis that I'm, I'm crafting here, I think about, let's talk about Angela Merkel and Europe, for example. Angela Merkel was on her knees uh, politically uh, a year or two ago. And now, because she's brought some level of stability through uh, her management of the crisis uh, uh, with COVID, she's back on track. People have some sense, okay, uh, you know, there's some stability here. We can go back to, yes, we, we, we like you, Angela, because you've given us stability. Whereas in the United States, it's exactly the opposite. So I'm thinking of it in terms of that same paradigm still playing out today and being worse in the United States than it is elsewhere. And that's why we see the mania that we're seeing right now in the U.S. more so than other places. It's just a, just a, uh, a, a theory, but I just think that it's interesting to not just look at the stocks on a day-to-day -day basis, but to have sort of a more um, macro view of what's driving this. And, and I think the Blythe and uh, Lonergan thing drove me to think, you know, more big picture of, uh, of, you know, longer time frame. Yeah. And another thing that reinforces your thesis on a longer time frame in the context of the political economy is the very clear drifting apart that we've seen the polarization of American politics. The fact that the political parties in 2020 in the U.S. feel farther apart than they ever have in my lifetime. Uh, there's a, a, a basic uh, disconnect about even what the actual facts on the ground are. This is a pretty extraordinary thing. Not that politics was ever a soft sport. You're a guy who grew up in Washington, D.C. You knew that, know that better than most. But the level of polarization that we seem to have makes it very unlikely, uh, it seems, that we're going to be able to compromise on substantive policy issues like, you know, for example, education and healthcare, to name just two, uh, but also things like 
management of a crisis like COVID. Yeah, so I think uh, it's hard to wrap this up in terms of thinking about what does it mean for people who are watching this show? What does it mean in terms of, you know, prognosticating for the future? But I'm thinking back to an interview I did with Daniel LaCalle, and I think he was very positive on the United States. Uh, when you when you juxtapose the United States and Europe, he looks at Europe as a, a staid, old and uh, and and crusty and not dynamic in the way that the United States is. I think at the same time you could make the argument that the United States is much more um, unstable, if you will, and it's the instability of the United States that's going to be the its Achilles heel in this particular cycle in this pandemic, and that makes it uh, much more uncertain as to what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. You know, I've always enjoyed Daniel LaCalle's pieces. I think he's one of the most insightful uh, people who we regularly have returned to the platform. You know, I would probably just add to that, um, all things being equal, I would probably be far uh, more likely to bet on the country that is sovereign in a monetary sense, that has the ability uh, to control its own monetary policy. Uh, than Europe, because you have, the, if you think about the the even the discord that we have within the United States uh, compared to uh, the discord between you know the frugal four on the one hand and Club Med on the other, that's a massive wide divergence uh, of policy views. A, a real, I mean, a, a break in in worldview and a fundamental understanding of what governance is uh, far greater than the, the divide, as substantial as it is, between the Democratic and Republican Party here in the United States. So I would still be secularly long on the United States uh, vis-a-vis Europe. So there you have it. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a good place as any to, uh, to end it for today. Certainly to be continued. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.